This time, we're taking a look at the Broken Family Reconciliation Classic E.T., the extraterrestrial. And along the way, we ask, did Spielberg intend for all of the Jesus allegories? How did this movie manage to sink the entire video game industry? And is E.T. really that scary? Podcast phone home. This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, where it is Steven Spielberg Month. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined by my friend and co-host. The key master and scientist, Sean Michael Culp. Okay, so you got a little Ghostbusters, Peter Coyote <laughs> character role you've envisioned for yourself in a Spielberg movie? Apparently. Well, because I think the the villain guy in this movie, according to Wikipedia, they called him like Keys or the Key Man, at least at the Wikipedia page that I looked at. So I was like, all right, if we're just going to call this guy Keys, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down. Or what? Yeah, Keys. A government agent bent on capturing E.T. I don't know. Is he the really a bad guy, though? I mean, because he's really sympathetic towards Elliot. And right. I mean, he just wants to meet. It almost seems like he wants to meet E.T. It's not like he wants to dissect him or you know put him in prison or anything. I think he's just like, I really just want to find him. Yeah. So it's like, I, I don't even know if he is a villain. Right. That's a good point. Maybe you just you always got to have someone as a villain in a movie. But you're absolutely right, because he has that wonderful moment where he's like, I'm glad it's you to Elliot. So I'll be keys. That's fine. (laughs) Moral of the story. (laughs) But sure, Ghostbusters is fine, too. Uh, I liked uh, I liked that intro, by the way, too. That was uh, that was pretty good. Well, thank you. I mean, this uh, this doesn't exactly fit in. This isn't the square peg in the round hole type of situation. I mean, <laughs> E.T. is certainly a science fiction film, but there's also a lot of family drama and reconciliation that occurs in the movie because there's some there's some deep pain here in the Taylor family. Absolutely. Steven Spielberg, once again, focusing on the family. The second movie in a row, man. I, I think do we have a theme? Is that a theme? I think that's a theme in a lot of his movies. If you look at the story, I mean, uh, looking back at a movie we previously covered, Minority Report, that's a very broken family. I mean, John Anderton lost his son, is presumed dead. He's separated from his wife. He's trying, he's in the throes of drug addiction. So there's, and then even look at a more classical uh, film he's done, like uh, Schindler's List. That's a very you know, broken, egotistical man who has affairs and cavorts around, but ultimately finds a you know, a moral high ground to stand upon and saves an entire generation of people. So I think he's he's very much adept at telling stories of broken people or broken families that manage to piece themselves back together. He does. He he hits us where it hurts. He hits us where we need to be. You know where he knows where to get us. Right at the throes of family, and there's nothing more that I think we can relate to. That's why. Could you make an argument? And we can definitely get into the synopsis of this movie, but I'm sure that most people know. Um, I wonder if, like Spielberg, that's like his goal with some of these films is it's about family, but he uses sci-fi as like the veneer, the backdrop. 
Yeah, I think he definitely knows what his uh, his oeuvre is, and it's it's these highly technological science fiction films that showcase either broken people or broken families and somehow repairing relationships or finding a way to move forward for the betterment of everybody. Amen to that. Because he hits it right on the head. Like, if you're a good director, the setting doesn't matter. It's the story that you tell with it, right? It's... Right. So I... I, Right. Go for it. And as you were saying, like, I think the plot of E.T. is just so ubiquitous. I don't even know if a synopsis is necessary. (laughs) Alien gets stranded on Earth, finds little boy. Little boy has to help Alien find his way home. Simple. Very simple. And you kind of, he opens it up as like, and I, I hadn't seen this in so long. I'm telling you, since the 90s probably. So I, all this was kind of new to me with the opening. I, I for some reason, thought E.T. was already stranded. No, I like how the opening sets it up. Like, they're, like they're on, it almost seems like they're on some sort of scientific fact-finding mission to maybe not uh, scout Earth in a military uh, type of way, but maybe it's more like an agricultural type of situation because you know they're picking up a lot of plant life and examining the fauna in the area, and they want to see you know what exactly what the environment on Earth is like. Yeah, he paints the aliens as a uh, nice creatures. Like these are—they're not evil. They don't look sinister. They're like these cute little. Almost like Pillsbury Doughboy-looking creatures in the shadows as they waddle back and forth. Well, yeah, and their hearts light up too. Like, mm-hmm. what more could you want? <laughs> what what more cuter than that? And typical humans, you know, they they come rushing in to scare them away. I, I don't. Yeah, it's and it's, but we also don't get a good glimpse of ET, and probably for a, for a solid. 20 minutes into the movie we see uh you know him running away from um the humans that show up with the trucks and him finding his way into that neighborhood and you know scaring the bejesus out of poor elliot by rolling the baseball back to his feet (laughs) i would say this is a great way to introduce the creature as opposed to howard the duck where they just kind of did quick cuts of his hands and feet before like releasing it I mean, yeah, like even some of the marketing of E.T., I think the poster itself shows, you know, E.T.'s hand reaching out to Elliot. And yeah, like you're absolutely right. This is a great way of disguising, you know, what E.T. is until we're ready to see him and interact with Elliot. Like, like have some mystery to the character, not like Howard the Duck. I just liked how, like how you said, it, it's very ambiguous at the beginning. You don't know if this is an evil creature or not, what he's going to do. You know, E.T. is just as scared as Elliot, as Elliot is of him, you know, at first. And then, you know, slowly but surely they develop this cute little bond. God, Spielberg, he is the master. I, I, this will be the first of our many praises, I'm sure. I mean, we've already done a whole other episode praising Spielberg, but I mean, you also have to look at where he was, you know, in terms of his career in Hollywood. I mean, in the previous year, he was fresh off of 
directing Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was a wildly successful film. He still quite wasn't he wasn't married uh, at this point. He was involved, um, uh, was previously involved with an actress, Amy Irving, but still hadn't hadn't married and hadn't had children Mm -hmm. just yet. but yeah, this is this is now Steven Spielberg, like fully formed Hollywood juggernaut director. Yeah, he is the master class, I think, at this one. And I think I sent you some texts about that where he this one, it's just so different than a Close Encounters, even Jaws. Those seem kind of like early Spielberg where he's just kind of like messing around with the camera. It's almost dirty. Um, but this one, he has his money shots like. He's using the smoke machine. He's he's using his props. E.T. looks great. Like he's using the shadows. You get just these wonderful cuts um, and glimpses where he just rocks out those special effects. It's not, um, I, I it's not independent feel. No, it's definitely like the world has expanded for Steven Spielberg. He's gone beyond making. Um, you know blockbusters you know, as as much as we love you know Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark like yes E.T. still very much has a big blockbuster feel to it but he this is like the combination finally of great sympathetic characters like Elliot and Michael um, and Mary now combined with his you know prowess and an eye for you know practical visual effects and giving us that spectacle. It all comes together really for the first time with E.T. Yeah, he does. He does. It's the perfect, it's the best of both worlds for him. He's li- He literally, if you want to see a film that's firing all on all cylinders, he does it with this. And it's interesting that he came off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is kind of like that film is kind of dark especially how it ends and then immediately decides to make this, which is more of like a, we could say a children's film. Yeah. I mean, you definitely can. I mean, yeah. I mean, Raiders, I mean, first thing I think of when Raiders, when you're talking about dark is, you know, the, you know, Nazis faces melting at the end of the movie, which I mean, (laughs) given the current political climate, I mean, that's something I'm okay with seeing every time. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just such a grotesque film. Yeah, in Indiana Jones, I mean, I know there's a lot of, you know, talk about like, oh, is he a hero? Like uh, Indiana Jones is really kind of an anti-hero because pay attention in that movie. He, you know, had something of an illicit affair with an underage child and kind of is just like he's kind of a jerk in that movie. He is. He is not that great of a person, I would say. He just doesn't even want to be there. He's typical Harrison Ford. It's like Han Solo. If he was in the 1950s. But then he steers back the opposite way with E.T. and having a larger, uh, like a predominantly uh, ca- uh, predominant cast of child actors, which is like, mm-hmm. well, you can't get mad at kids. Kids are innocent. They don't do anything wrong. No. And, and they grow so much. Like you have the brother that was, um, oh, what the heck was it? Michael Taylor. So... Uh, Robert McNaughton, I'm going to say is his name, Michael. And he, uh, at first, you know, he has kind of a mean-spirited relationship with Elliot where he's kind of a jerk, but they really come together around this wonderful little alien. And you see the family grow a lot. 
Yeah, and I think it helps that the movie is shot in chronological order so we are able to see tremendous growth and chemistry among the cast and i think it helps too that spielberg is largely drawing on his own experience being you know the older sibling and being you know somewhat of an antagonist towards his younger siblings i mean because he also had yeah because like you were saying like there's always like that that switch somewhere in the in the sibling relationship where the older and younger sibling just decides to you know, put aside their crap and, and get along. I mean, it happens with everybody at some point who has an older sibling. Hopefully, right? Because, yeah, there may be envy, jealousy, etc. But ideally, as an older sibling, you'd think, or at least like my role as an older sibling, I'd want to help facilitate growth and be that support, you know, that leader for like my younger brother, essentially. And that's, um, you see that. With Elliot's older brother, at first he's kind of a jerk, but then he supports him. He supports him throughout. He's willing to go to bat, drive a car illegally underage, help him with the Halloween disguising E.T. Like, he goes to bat for his younger brother when he really didn't have to. Well, and it also helps that, like, the the other kids in the Taylor family are really cute. I mean, we've got Henry Thomas as Elliot, the main character, and also a... A very young Drew Barrymore as Gertie, the youngest child. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't believe it that it was her, but I, I totally forgot that she was in this. This was kind of like her claim, the early uh, Drew Barrymore before she became who she is now. So cute. Those kids were so cute. I know. I was watching this with my beloved, and she was looking at at Drew Barrymore, and she's like, "She looks really familiar." I'm like, "Honey, that's Drew Barrymore." And she's like, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah, you didn't know." Elizabeth, did she like this film? Because I know you said that she doesn't really like sci-fi. Um, she stopped watching it with me about <laughs> halfway through. Um, for reasons we're gonna get into a little later. Um. <laughs> I'm so dumb. I'm maybe throwing her under the bus a little bit at some point in this episode. <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth. I'm so dead. <laughs> oh god. So this film, it was uh let's I guess who who wrote this? Melissa Matheson? Yes, yeah, she she is an author and screenwriter and she um, is the ex-wife of Harrison Ford and had met uh, they had met while working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and they were just you know kind of spitballing the story a little bit Spielberg was talking about you know his his life you know being a child of divorce and then also having an imaginary alien friend and he just kind of thought about combining the two and um, apparently he I guess there was this was originally envisioned like a bit more darker um, where the, there were evil aliens that terrorize the family. But I think Spielberg wanted to go something a bit more lighthearted, given how there are very, you know, there are very uh, prominent moments in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where like that the movie walks a fine line between thriller and science fiction. Yeah, that's and I couldn't remember that this film, you know, I, I couldn't remember how it went. I always, I was waiting on edge for like something bad to happen. You know, I was like, no, the alien, someone, something bad has to happen. It has to go dark, you know? Cause I feel like that's a Spielberg trait where things always like take a weird turn and it didn't, 
It didn't. It, it, he kept it very. It stayed in its lane, and it was. Um, it it definitely subverted my expectations. Yeah, there's some definite moments where yeah, it kind of walks that whole like, you know, especially when ET gets sick, you kind of wonder is he is he going to die? Is this going to turn into an entirely different movie? But it all, it comes through and, and Spielberg gives us, you know, the happy, you know, the happy family friendly ending that he's kind of, you know, kept in his back pocket for a long time. Um, but I was kind of surprised to see, or at least to, to hear about how, you know, after the script was completed, you know, Columbia passed on this movie, you know, even though, <laughs> even though Raiders was in full, <laughs> you know, marketing promotion and it was going to be one of the biggest hits ever. Columbia was all like, oh, no, we don't want to do this. That is so wild. They missed out. They missed out. You. It always makes me wonder, like, do those people who decided these, like, crazy decisions that we've seen, did they get fired? Someone probably had to get fired for that choice. You know, I think it cuts both ways. I, I mean, because we saw, you know, after the, the failure of Howard the Duck, executives were fired and i think that cuts both ways if you pass on something that becomes a mega hit well then you have to explain to your bosses why you passed on it and yeah like you you may not have a job you know if you have to explain to your executive that you passed on avatar yeah (laughs) and it's hard that's not a fun conversation to have no and it's tough right because movies i feel like are just so tough it's it's a it's a dice throw because Disney thought like John Wick, for example, or not John Wick, um, John Carter was going to be like this big thing. And boy, were they wrong. Well, that just turned out to be a massive $250 million boondoggle that nobody could recover from. <laughs> right? But you'd think with Spielberg, his success from Jaws, you know, Raiders was crushing it. Close Encounter. Yeah, 1941 wasn't that great. But... You know, he had more hits than flops. So it just it it it's interesting that they're like, no, we don't want to see this guy do a alien film. Yeah, but thankfully Universal Studios stepped in and was like, Hey, we'll make this movie for you. <laughs> yeah. Which <laughs> it's like you don't you don't have to twist our arm, we'll make this movie for you. You made us a buttload of money with Jaws, here you go. God, they're known they're like synonymous with it now. Cause did it um and it, I don't think it's universal, but for a long time you know, with VHS, the, you know, the pre-credits before the film rolls, there used to be, like, the kid biking to the mo- across the moon. I don't think that was universal. Um, No, that's um, Spielberg's production company, Amblem Entertainment, is now, that is the symbol that you see is uh, the E.T. and the bike uh, crossing the full moon. Gotcha. I guess we can put that in for the legacy. <laughs> <laughs> But that's really interesting that they skipped. And it's also interesting that Spielberg added his uh, stories from his childhood to kind of create the imaginary friend. Um, It makes sense, though. You know, some of the best stories are told from, you know, the the stuff that we went through as kids. I will say um, the thing that was pretty extraordinary to me with this was the practical effects, like using like E.T. in and of himself. I don't I don't want to say like it's a it was jarring but it was just it took time to like get adjusted and I think that's because we're so used to now seeing CGI that it's like our, at least my brain initially was like whoa well it is kind of a 
puppet looking thing kid in a costume but then i, I kind of i was able to like work through it and really appreciate the animatronics oh yeah there's there's definitely some limitations to it but i think and then we've mentioned it many times on this project that anytime practical effects can be accomplished you go ahead and do it and it well and it allows the audience to connect and buy into this premise of an alien that is interacting with this family and specifically this 10 year old boy. And there's a, there's a buy-in quality with it as opposed to putting, if this movie was made 20 years later, this would easily be a CGI character, but instead it's an animatronic puppet and we're allowed the opportunity to buy in and connect with the creature on screen, even though it is a puppet. And it, it has that like humanistic quality with him like you know waddling around and everything it's cute it's it's really cute whereas if it was a cgi like you said 20 years later i think i don't know it, it would kind of take me out of it a little bit because it's still it's weird even modern films with cgi like i buy in but i also know it's like this computer generated thing so it's like my brain still knows it's being tricked well, and we should also give a shout out to Carlo Rombaldi, who designed and built the animatronics for this movie, because he had previously worked with Spielberg on Close Encounters, and he was a right fit to design another alien for a Spielberg film. Oh, yeah. Like, E.T. E.T. is just wonderful. So interesting with, like, the long, retractable neck, you know, his fingers. Like, I think they put, with the persons in the costume, like, they had, like, extensions on their fingers. The eyes, the expressions on the face, like they all, it worked. It worked. Oh, those eyes, those big expressive eyes, they reminded me a lot like a dog's eyes, like how they, you know, just a dog, an animal's eyes can just convey a wide range of emotions. And that's just what E.T.'s eyes reminded me of. Yes. And you could almost say like his eyes are now the Disney eyes, right? Whenever we want to see a nice cuddly creature that means no harm they have the big blue eyes like et <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i see a lot of um a lot of inspiration in character design taken from this movie that i i totally that totally makes sense now the cult yes the cultural re, re, uh impact for sure um, I did find it interesting because while I was watching this movie, I was it reminded me of you know being younger, the Reese's PC scenes where he's like dropping them off throughout the forest to kind of get ET to come back to the house. When I used to watch this as a kid, it was like I always was craving Reese's PCs then, and I remember just as a kid always then. <laughs> buying some or or making my mom buy me some like eating them throughout the movie with this um it was just like synonymous with et for me so i was kind of nostalgic it's a lot of um like pavlov's dog like um and it's it's insane to me reading that um you know the mars company actually declined having their their product in this movie but then you know, after, you know, Reese, Reese is all like, oh, yeah, you can have us in here. I'm reading on here like the Hershey company, their profits for 65 percent due to their product placement in this movie. <laughs> Which, once again, now we're seeing, you know, probably because of this film and they saw how profitable it was to have all these features, you know, of products. All right, let's do it. We're going to put more food 
you know, we're going to have uh, more featured, um, you know, Subway, M&M's, et cetera, Pepsi. That's always something to keep in mind, everybody, is that product placement in movies is a relatively, I mean, in the grand scheme of movie making, is still relatively new. So, like, when, you know, Reese's Pieces shows up in a Steven Spielberg movie, yeah, it's a, it was a big deal in the early 1980s. Definitely. And I think he, but how he used it is different than you'll see like in those some god-awful Adam Sandler movies where he literally looks at the camera is like Dunkachino you know whereas this you saw the package you saw the colored um you know M- uh, Reese's looking things and you're like oh these are Reese's but it's not like Elliot turned to the screen and was like eat some Reese's pieces you know yeah you could find aliens too with Reese's pieces <laughs> <laughs> that would be way over the top if like et all of a sudden is like reese's (laughs) that's just schlock 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 i was actually impressed with this movie also um about having mainly kids because sometimes children do not act well no and i think um spielberg i mean spielberg went through an extensive casting process um to find the right combination of of child actors to to be together. I mean, not only did they all have to look similar, but they had to act well together. And you know, obviously we like we've mentioned there's this is a really young cast like all across the board uh in most respects. Um and you know, he Spielberg drew a lot of experience from working uh with Carrie Guffey on Close Encounters and really brought that experience here and like we said, this is probably his first movie where the cast is mostly children. Yeah. And he rocked it out. I mean, the kid that played Elliot, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Henry Thomas. I thought he did a really good job. Like that kid, you know, I don't I don't think his career ever really took off after this movie, but um I thought he did he was really good. Uh who played uh, Elliot? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been in a Henry Thomas has been in a few things uh, since then. He was in uh, Legends of the Fall in the in the mid '90s. Looks like he was in Gangs in New York, and he does a lot of uh, work with uh, Mike Flanagan now. Like he does, um, he was in The Haunting of Hill House, a Netflix series, as well as The Haunting of Bly Manor and Midnight Mass. Uh, he also was in a uh, uh, Doctor Sleep. He was uh, the the <laughs> updated version of Jack Torrance. I have only seen Dr. Sleep out of all those things you have listed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so for me, bit player, but I will take your word for it, Chris. I need to get more educated. Well, that's my non-sci-fi recommendation of the week is the works of Mike Flanagan on <laughs> Netflix. The man is a, a genius in the horror genre. I am so dead. <laughs> he is, well, you're right. He, he did. Um, the children were great. I mean, Drew Barrymore was so cute. She crushed it. Um, Robert McNaughton, I thought he was really good as well. You know, their their expressions, they just, I believed them. Yeah, and it's all, they're all so emotive. And it's. And I think it, it's uh, it's a testament to how Spielberg con- uh, constructed the shooting schedule because this was done in 61 days, largely in chronological order to really get that connection and emotion from these young actors and it's i mean it pays off it it paid off 
Yeah. Get it quick and, you know, just keep going. Because, yeah, I'm sure, especially with children and how you shoot it, you know, you don't want to take away from, like, their studies and all that as well. No, I mean, this is still, you know, Hollywood. There's very strict laws as to when you can, you know, have child actors working and you have to have teachers or tutors on set so work still gets done. Or, I don't know, I don't, I'm don't. i not familiar with the whole you know, child labor acting laws. So maybe it's, uh, maybe it was different in the early eighties. Hopefully somebody can shed a light on that for us. <laughs> Definitely. That's funny. Yeah. Right. Child labor laws in the eighties on ET. Didn't, um, what did you think about the voice of ET? Uh, it's gravelly. It's raspy. It's, uh, in a lot of ways it's haunting. It is certainly not the voice you know, we would have expected from this inter, uh, intergalactic creature, but it's, um, I don't know, there's kind of almost like an innocence to it. It's almost like it's, you know, undeveloped. Like E.T. is using, you know, vocal cords for the first time, and this is the voice that we're getting. The first time talking. And it's interesting that it's, um, well, it's Patricia Welsh. So it's a female that did it. And I think you wrote for notes that like they were a chain smoker. So like it was a raspy voice, you know, was added because of the, I'm sure they're, you know, cigarettes that they smoked, um, which is very interesting to me. Maybe because like Pat, like um, the person that voiced was a female, it added sort of that innocence, more of like a feminine somewhat, you know, as opposed to it being like this male voice. A lot of it was uh, it was manipulated. Um, like she smoked those two packs of cigarettes a day, but uh, she spent um, so much time like the other people. Excuse me. Afterwards, the, the voice was manipulated or slowed down by Ben Burtt, or there's a, a mix in of other noises. Like apparently, um, like Spielberg like contributed some voices uh the actress deborah winger also contributed some sounds um there's also several animal noises kind of mixed in as well so it's there's a (laughs) lot of work that ben burt did to really create the voice and sound of et it's like sampling music nowadays Kanye West samples 125 songs that have this one sound in one of his tracks and it's like what yeah, that's wild, man. I didn't know any of that. They sampled that much stuff just to get the E.T. phone home. That's wild, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's I mean, it's a testament to the care and, and craftsmanship that went into creating the look and feel of this movie. I agree. And it's it was memorable, too, because where else, you know, people wouldn't um, like me. I wouldn't be, you know mimicking parodying etc you know it, it hits so kudos to them well on that note i think it's uh after 32 some odd minutes i think we can finally get into more <laughs> of the meat and potatoes of et i'm down so i mean i don't i don't know if you if you got this sense watching this but i i had an inkling pretty early on that et was maybe the youngest among this group of aliens that came to visit earth Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he definitely seems like you know a a young boy or young thing. Like it's a gender is not made known of of ET. We the the Taylor family just assume that it's a boy, 
Because I mean, it's not like E. It's not like E. T. Probably has any concept of gender, and it's just like, okay, I'll go along with this. You can call me he. Yeah, that is true, right? Because the daughter, um, Drew Barrymore, dresses up E. T. and uh, you know, in as a female, um, and you know, as a girl, and E. T. was chilling with it too. <laughs> I mean, but him, but E.T. being the youngest among his group, I mean, it certainly would make sense, you know, why he connects with Elliot rather than Michael or or Mary, the mother of the Taylor family. Uh, it also explained why he's very nervous or scared in similar situations that a child might be nervous or scared in. Um, and his language skills aren't quite developed. I mean, he's clearly a being of higher intelligence. And he's able to acquire language skills fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, when you look at it like that, and like, yeah, I mean, E.T. is very, like, possibly close to the same age that Elliot is in this film, if you if you look at it through the lens of a child. I agree. I think they both really, they had that connection, and they had that really good scene um, where E.T.'s, like, drinking and gets, like, kind of drunk while watching television and then he's connected to Elliot and Elliot looks drunk in class. And I wasn't sure if like E.T. learned how to speak from the TV or if it was like from taking apart that device and like him taking apart had like, I don't know, like the letters up upgraded to like his brain or so. I, I couldn't figure it out um, how he understood it. But you're absolutely right. There was like that connection and they seem very, very similar. The alien version of Elliot, for sure. Well, even that scene where E.T. is raiding the fridge, like um, in that connection we see is shared between him and Elliot. It felt a lot like what infants do, you know, when they when they're connecting with their mothers. It feels a lot like imprinting almost. Mm -hmm. Definitely. They were like almost telepathic in a way. And he could he could feel what E.T. was feeling. Or in this case, he could feel what E.T. was drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Which was an interesting scene. Absolutely. That was wild. Like with the teacher just having the frogs in the jars and then just dropping in uh, little cotton balls with chloroform. All right. Just drop them in. Cover it. They're going to pass out. It's okay. They're not going to feel anything. That was barbaric to me. Like, I have a very hard time believing that that's how frog dissection was done in the early 80s. If I mean, if we have any listeners who were in school at that time and dissected frogs, I mean, please shed some light on this. But, like, I have a... I mean, to me, that's just like, I, they actually did it like this? Because I remember doing this in school and, like, the the animals already came, you know, pre-dead. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you as well, Chris. I, I, I had similar feelings of, like... There's no way. But at the same token, it could have been the 80s. The 80s were a much different time. When I dissected, it was a good 20 years later, you know, in the 2000s. So maybe. Maybe the laws weren't in place yet. No wonder we had a bunch of serial killers running around. We had the public school system (laughs) teaching them how to murder frogs. (laughs) Right? Wow, this is so exciting. It's like, whoa, God. All right, calm down there, Jeffrey Dahmer. It's going to be okay. (laughs) Uh, and then even more so to the point of E.T. like being like a child, I mean, more so towards the end, like 
and this is something we can explore a little bit later, like E.T.'s immune system isn't as fully developed like a like a young child would be, and is very vulnerable to illness and infection. He is. And he, you know, he, much like a child, you know, they they cope really well, and their bodies, like whenever anything significant like trauma or something happens to a kid, they'll go, they'll go, they'll go, but once they crash, it's like a quick... Boom! You're done. We're, it's not like adults where we slowly descend, as we you know as we get into a weakened state. Children like boom, they go. And ET once he was sick, it was just like it was all downhill. Within that day, he was like dead. Yeah, turns ghostly white and not sure if he could pull out of it. It was very weak. It was it was very heartbreaking to see ET in a, in a state like that. Yeah, that, that was that was really sad. The ghostly white, he just, it was, aw, you know, Elliot just cared so much for him and he, he want, he couldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It, it reminds you of when you see people you love that are dying, you know, or in a very weakened state and it's like you, there's like nothing you can do, you know? And I think it's even more, E.T.'s it, 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 pain is sort of, you know, a, like reflection of the Taylor family pain in this film. I mean, cause I mean, we, we have to kind of piece this together at the beginning of the film, but it's clear that the, you know, the dad isn't around and him and Mary have been divorced and it's like, we don't realize what's going on until, you know, Elliot says that that one quick line and he goes, you know, dad would believe me like, or he's in Mexico with Sally and you just, you see the heartbreak and pain on Mary's face played brilliantly by D Wallace. And she just has to get up and leave the table. And it's just like, wow, like Elliot, I get your 10 and all, but you don't uh, quite understand exactly like how much hurt you've, you've inflicted on your mom here. Yep. And it takes his brother telling him, you know, why don't you think about someone else other than yourself, you know, stop and consider other people's feelings before you talk. Which is really good, um, you know. the The intent was there, because that is important. And you, they, he painted, but Spielberg painted such a good picture of that. The heartbreak from you know divorce and how it impacts. It cuts deep, you know. And at the same time, too, it seems like they all enjoy a pretty cool relationship with their mom. Like I don't know if you picked this up, but they call they call her Mary quite a bit in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is no mom. Like, I mean, think for a second if you tried getting away with this, like calling your parents by one of their first names, they would have instantly shut that down. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I remember as a kid calling my parents by their name and they're like, what? Why did you call me? <laughs> you know, and I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's just like her parenting style, feeling bad or whatever, you know, everyone's relationships with their parents are different. Um, yeah. I don't know if this is the podcast to dissect the socio <laughs> relationships, <laughs> why we call our parents, but that is a really good, interesting question. Why we call our parents, mom, dad, as opposed to their names. I don't know. I mean, it is the early 80s. Maybe they're just and it's California. Maybe it's just a really progressive household. Right. Maybe. Absolutely. She's giving the power to her children. You know, you are you are your own. Auto, you know, you have your autonomy. 
you're you're you have agency as a human being. You are not this thing, you know, that suckles off of me. No. <laughs> I like the uh so what I was always like confused when I watched this is the dude that's like tracking. Um initially I was like, well that doesn't, you know, this guy can just like go in and listen into people's houses. It made me like think You know, back in the 80s, I'm like, did they have, like, government legislation that allowed people just to, like, wiretap whenever? Um, So I was like, ooh, I wonder if this could be a lawsuit. I mean, maybe, or if it's more like black book type of stuff or even off book. Like, you're you're not exactly going to advertise to the American public that, like, hey, we don't have to tap your phones. We can just drive a van right on by and listen into what's going on in your house. Yeah, which they very well could, but that was wild how, you know, they did that and they showed, you know, them listening to their conversations because Keys, he was he was hell-bent on finding E.T., and he got him. Yeah, it's never clear, like, which alphabet soup type agency it is that does show up because they show up right away in the beginning of the movie like all we know is that they're they're from the government but it's like are they air force cia nsa i mean even nasa like we we don't know exactly who shows up to you know track et or even what they want to do with et all we know is that they're there in the forest looking for aliens Mm -hmm. which is once again interesting because spielberg I think, you know, in a modern depiction, he made a choice because I, I see a lot of times, you know, like with Mars attacks or whatever, um, we'll see like a military presence whenever there's aliens. But this one, once again, this movie, he takes more of a holistic approach like, oh, it's scientists. They're going to be tracking as opposed to, oh, there's aliens. You know, we got to blow them up. And Keys is really the only one among this group that we actually get to know. We don't, I mean, obviously Keys isn't his real name, but we, you know, he he has that connection with Elliot, and he almost seems like he's too nice to be a part of this group. Yeah, I I felt that as well. Like when he, you know, has that scene with Elliot that, um, where he's like, you know, I've, this is a miracle. I've been praying for E.T. to come and, you know, I'm glad he found you instead of someone else. I, I, part of me, the cynic in me from movies, I was like, oh, he's just saying that to the kid so he could like lie to him. But no, I mean, the guy, he was legit, which was really interesting. It was an interesting choice by Spielberg. And I think it's made all the more, you know, real and connective when it's played by an actor like Peter Coyote, who. Like, you just feel the conviction Mm -hmm. when he says, you know, I'm glad he found you first. Yeah. and But I think that's like, it's science, you know, in the way. Like, I think a scientist would want to study this creature. But ultimately, like, if the creature needs to get back home to survive, I don't don't see a a scientist as this mustache twirling. <laughs> no, we're going to keep you in and dissect you and use you for purposes. Ah, you know, like I see, you know, uh, it just depends on the moral and ethical code of the scientist. But um, I think he did the right choice keys by just letting them go. And, you know, they had their time with ET. They did their things and that was it. 
Yeah, there's a genuine interest in finding out what E.T. is and what he's capable of. It's not like they're going to... I mean, I don't know exactly how they can take his telepathic or healing abilities and, you know, reproduce that. But I think there it comes from a place of genuine scientific interest. Mm-hmm. Yes. Instead of, like, some crazy, you know, we're going to use this and take over the world or whatever, turn a profit. So that was nice. That was really nice to see for once. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of movie when the motivations are to cut off E.T.'s head and find out what makes the brain tick. <laughs> well, that's actually... So at the end of the movie, when, you know, his heart, E.T.'s heart is lit up pretty much the whole time, it, like, shows his heart in his chest. And so I couldn't... I, I was like, wait, did they, like, start dissecting him or something? Like, is that, like, his heart exposed? So for a quick second, I was confused, like, oh, God, how is this alien going to survive? But then, you know, it came back. So I was a little worried for just a brief moment. Yeah, I think the the heart is more of like um, a beacon, you know, when, uh, you know, his uh, his kind are closer. You know, they're turning on the, you know, the, the light and it's like, hey, it's time to come home now mm-hmm. kind of thing. I think that's what that was more meant to be like. But, yeah, I mean, there's... There's a lot of worry in this movie, and like, and I think this is another something I alluded to earlier. Like, there, I am shocked and amazed at you know, all the people I know in my life that actually find this movie to be somewhat scary. <laughs> like, like the 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 sheer presence of ET on screen is enough to scare some people. Like, do you know anybody in your life that is? either scared of this movie or scared of et not not from recollection um anymore i know when i was young i was scared initially you know when et makes first contact with elliot you know he's in the barn you know and there's all that suspense sure initially i was kind of terrified as a young boy but once you see et then it's like oh this is so cool he's so cute and you know i think the voice was a little, is a little, it sounds a little weird and it can be off-putting, right? Because it's not this cute, whimsical, calming, peaceful voice that I'm sure nowadays we're so used to with Disney-fied characters. Well, and I think if this movie were made, you know, 20 years later, you know, it, it, E.T. would have gotten a cute voice, but instead we get this innocent-sounding old woman you know being the voice of et like and i think in hindsight yeah i mean it's we can tell we can see now like why people would think et is scary like you know that that voice and then also like how how he screams you know that like he like in or that the high-pitched way that he screams when elliot sees him or when he's about to get caught in the woods and then even how he could suddenly elongate his neck i can see how that would be a bit jarring for people. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I like that Spielberg made this choice, you know, because with E.T., how he acts or how it acts is very much like an alien, you know, it's not this creature that's supposed to be like this cute and cuddly thing. It's, it's an alien, you know. It, this is how it sounds. It might not sound sexy or cute, 
this is how it looks. It may make weird, jerky movements, you know? And he owns it because it's a creature. It's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to sell toys, you know? It's it's just this weird alien that we design. This is how it acts. This is what we think it's going to interact with these people in these scenes. And it's not, you know, there's no hidden agenda that we see nowadays with, like, alien creatures. No, he's supposed to be innocent. He's supposed to have feelings. It's why he connects uh, deeply with Elliot and the Taylor family. Like, this is a fully formed, highly intelligent, emotional creature. And I I think it, it speaks volumes to, like, how, well, number one, you, it's just, there's so many great beats. Like you don't, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? Because E.T. isn't that, you know, initially he doesn't sound, he doesn't look or move or act as like this cute, all encompassing character initially, you know? And I think that's like the wonderful thing about this movie is like something that looks like E.T., sounds like he is, interacts with people it still can be this innocent, wonderful, nurturing thing that we can all unify, stand behind, and relate to, despite the differences. Yeah, and I think everybody was holding their breath when E.T. got sick and it all and it looked like it was all gonna end for him. It was it's a very sad portion of the film to see E.T. in a in a plastic bubble <laughs> waiting to die, it looks like. God Master class, you know, that's how you know this guy Spielberg is just so good at what he does is if he's able to make you like start caring and feeling for this little creature that's like a puppet, you know he's got you. And he did with that scene. It was kind of silly to me, like seeing people do like CPR and <laughs> bring out the paddles on this weird alien creature that they just met. But, you know, I wrote it off as a movie. You know, it's yeah, who knows how we would interact, right? We we'd probably would try human life-saving measures on this weird creature. Right, and they don't they don't know they're unfamiliar with his anatomy. Like they're going to try everything they can because they want to learn from him and you know, see this is an alien creature first contact situation and like you don't want it on your resume that it died under your watch, right? And I like that it was really ambiguous with uh, E.T. Like it doesn't, a lot of this movie with E.T. is ambiguous. And once again, that's a fantastic choice by Spielberg. He didn't need to explain it. Um, You know, there was no like screen where like E.T. is this species from this planet. No, it's up in the air. Like we don't even know why E.T. got sick. Well, I mean, mean, do you have any thoughts? Like why he got sick? Do you think it's like a War of the Worlds type dealie where... He couldn't handle our environment? I I guess so. I, I was thinking about that while watching it. Um, I couldn't remember if it was like a photosynthesis thing, if like oxygen. I don't know. Maybe the food. I don't know. I actually have no idea why E.T. got sick. I'm just going to chalk it up to like a planet thing, you know? A creature out of his own environment and couldn't adapt. I... I actually read a theory online that he's not physically sick so much as he's homesick. Hmm. Um, I mean, and it, and it makes sense. I mean, cause he, he's trying to, you know, he's building the communicator and he puts it out in the woods. He's not sure if it's working or not. And then he, he leaves and is found later by Michael on the bike. And, but he, 
he gets better when we see his heart glow up and he he tells Elliot that they're coming and they're on their way and E.T. realizes that he's you know going to go home if Elliot can get him out of this situation mm-hmm. and so I think yeah I think E.T. is more homesick and that in turn you know, affects his physical well-being I mean because that happens for all of us I mean it's proven that stress can lower our immune system and make us vulnerable to infection and it could be et's just under a tremendous amount of stress because you know he's left on a planet he that he's unfamiliar with he's obviously an alien creature he knows if he's caught he might get dissected or get killed and that's a for any normal person a a human being that would be tremendously stressful yeah (laughs) i like that i like that idea that's wonderful and that's a real, I think that's, that to me makes sense is very practical as well, you know, and it, 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 it's something that you could take away too in another element, you know, like take care of your mental health, take care of your stress because it's a killer. Yeah, like being okay with your feelings and recognizing that, you know, what peop, what you are feeling is totally valid if you're in that specific situation. I mean, E.T., is allowed to feel homesick because anybody else would feel homesick in this situation. Absolutely. That's how we deal with those feelings, you know, and allow ourselves to, you know, actualize as long as it's healthy and we can find good coping skills, right? That self-care. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I didn't, um, with this movie, I didn't know. I watched the original 1982 version. Is there other ones out? There is the 20th anniversary version that is out of, um, it's out of circulation. Like you can't get it anymore. Like (laughs) I have the, I think I have the 30th anniversary Blu-ray edition. That's what I watched. But uh, this was a big deal. Like I remember this being as like one of the first like major controversies because this was still right in that time period where George Lucas, you know, went back and made all those changes to the original Star Wars <laughs> films and Spielberg, you know, got on the same train and was like, well, if you're doing this with Star Wars, I can do this with E.T. And very famously, like there was a shot um, in the in the original movie, like at the end of the climax where the kids are about to take off with their bicycles, it's police officers holding shotguns. And then in the 20th anniversary edition, they're inexplicably holding radios. That is hilarious. <laughs> uh, so he wanted to make it less um, less violent, essentially, right? I think so. And there's also like like the the use of Carlo Rambaldi's puppet was replaced with the CGI ET, which also like, I mean it. <sighs> Having seen the original visual effects of like Star Wars and then the quote unquote updated ones, like I got it, like I prefer the original ones because like that's what made the movie so great. It's like <laughs> this didn't exist in 1977 and this didn't exist in 1982. So like I just it just looks weird seeing it. <laughs> yeah, I I I did not. So I haven't seen the updated, so I can't really say how you know it looks or anything. I can say the shotguns actually were kind of weird. Um, So I I understand. I can actually understand why he wanted to replace them. Because just watching this movie, like, there's really no violence. Um, 
at no point is there really that threat, you know, of like, ah, government, you know, we're going to kill the murder these children if they don't stop, you know? So, so I understand the tonally why Spielberg 20 years later looks back and is like, ah, maybe let's just switch it to radios. Cause this doesn't really make sense. So I understand that I actually can cause the shotguns didn't really make sense. Like, what are they going to do? Murder these children and this alien? <laughs> well, they were there was some pretty like heavy heavy backlash to this. I don't know if you remember this, but there was actually a South Park episode that got in on um, that got in on the hate for this um, because they were do, they were originally hating on um, the changes that Lucas made George Lucas made to Star Wars, and then. And this was a long, this was in Andy T and then the, the boys casually mentioned in the, in the South Park episode that it's like, Hey, why don't like, why don't you change Raiders of the Lost Ark? And Spielberg's like, Hey, that's actually a, a good idea. <laughs> so that like, there's just, the whole rest of the episode is them, you know, trying to kill Steven Spielberg and George Lucas for changing Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and then. Even Spielberg himself said in 2011 where that he's he's not going to make any more enhancements or additions to his movies. And and he, he said, like, the 1982 version, that's the version that that is the definitive one. I'm not going back and making any other changes. So it's <laughs> even Spielberg was just like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore because people really hated it. And I don't know if people hated it. I just think it was. You know, maybe not the best you know trend to to be a part of. Well, I think you know it's it's tough, right? Change is hard to deal with, especially for something like this, where like it's a movie, especially in two thousand two. It's it's been out for twenty years. There's been such a cultural um, impact. So seeing something like this changed by a director that you know initially maybe back in the day he made that choice for a reason or there wasn't enough special effects that, you know, um, feels all right. Now I can actualize whatever that version of the movie is. I think that's always tough, right? Going back and revisiting art and trying to manipulate it. It's a, it's like as if we went back to the Mona Lisa and like drew eyebrows on her or, or, you know, whatever (laughs) to make, to like, finally, ah, this is what it always needed. Um, so I think there's always going to be negative consequences to that, but you know, at the same time, I also understand that art isn't sacred and you can also, you know, if the, he, he made it. So if he wants to change it, he is very well up to it. But if people want to criticize it too, that's fine. I'm pretty, uh, I don't know. I'm pretty loosey goosey either way now. <laughs> whatever man i'm down for 1982 version but that's cool too it all works for me man i think the the version that that came out in 1982 is the definitive version there's no need for additional uh special effects or changes in dialogue or things like that it's just the movie should speak for itself and i'm glad spielberg recognized the fact that people you know love the original film because of what it what it was shown on screen and the images and feelings that people get and like even a simple act as replacing shotguns with radios i mean it takes the thrill out of that scene somewhat it's just there's no there's no real threat there's no real danger and it's 
I mean, I'm I'm glad that he saw the error of his ways, but there's there was it was he was just doing something that nobody really asked for is mm-hmm. is my takeaway from it. Yeah. It's good to see like the motivations why. I'd be curious to know like why he did it, you know? That's why I'm curious to see like, you know, was it things that like he he initially wanted to do or like he later regret I don't know. But it's interesting. Absolutely. You know, I could see your point with it as well. It's why um I know a lot of actors they don't rewatch their old movies. Like um because like I, I think Johnny Depp and like even Tommy Lee Jones has said because they'll see the scene and then they'll be like, Oh, I wish I would have done it a different way. And you know, it's past, it's done. We, we've moved on from this. So I have no reason to like rewatch it. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, and people, I mean, there's some people who are their own worst critic and like, I get it, but no thing. If you make something that's so beloved, in the moment, like E.T. was, then I don't see a reason to go back and change things. There we go. Force-fed sci-fi. Keep it as it is. <laughs> don't change things that don't need to be changed. Right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, one last thing, I guess, on the notes here is uh, E.T. as Jesus. I will agree with you. Um that scene where, you know, the, the ambulance doors open and then E.T. has like the white shroud, you know, the towel thing around his head. And he's like Mary Magdalene or Jesus with like the his heart all lit up. I do see why people think it's very religious as well as like him dying and coming back. Right. Um, and changing the perspectives of people. I can definitely see those con- those, you know, those elements in it. Yeah, like I I know Spielberg has maintained that this movie is about family, but the Jesus allegories cannot be ignored. Like you were saying, he, he dies and then he's resurrected. He can perform miracles with the, the healing. He's shrouded in white. He's trying to return home to the heavens, as it were. Um, and then before he leaves, he imparts you know unspoken wisdom to his friends. Kind of like the Sermon on the Mount before <laughs> Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, oh, Stephen. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was. Maybe, maybe it was. Um, maybe he didn't know. You know, maybe it was unconscious. It could be. I mean, also too, like that's a lot of. I mean, when you, when you think of like, oh, from a religious perspective, like, yeah, you could certainly make those those parallels but there's also there's peter pan parallels here um there's also themes of uh tolerance and love and family and reconciliation so there's there's a lot of different buckets to kind of draw from here absolutely and and you know just because he does a good thing doesn't essentially mean like you know it's automatically religious because a lot of those things you know that um, we, we talked about, you know, outside of, you know, the resurrection returning to the heavens, but like instilling wisdom in people and doing your best to like help heal people, whether it's in, internally or physically, I think are all great things, um, that someone should do. And they're great characteristics of, you know, someone that's maybe an important figure in modern times. And I think it's something to shoot for. So I can see where, 
he's going by it, but I also uh, I see both sides of it. Yeah, like you don't have to create a Jesus allegory to you know, impart <laughs> wisdom and try to make people better or you know or to heal people. It's uh I think it's it, it's low hanging fruit, you know, kind of <laughs> like why we didn't pick on Leah Thompson for Howard the Duck. It's I mean it's a science fiction movie about a highly evolved intelligent alien. Like yes, it's it, it maybe the story just lends itself to him having a, a higher accessibility to evolution and intelligence that we're, that humanity is just doesn't have at the moment <laughs> right not yet but who knows maybe maybe in the future we'll find out but not on this episode <laughs> not on this episode <laughs> so that's us with jesus did you um was that was that a lens flare for you um no not exactly i mean because it's not it's not like there's a symbol of a cross behind E.T. when he emerges <laughs> from the ambulance in white. Like, if there was a, a cross somewhere, you know, in that smoke, I would say, okay, we're reaching a little bit. But, I mean, or I mean, I, got, I, mean, I don't think I actually have a lens flare in terms of watching E.T. Like, I almost went with the, the moment in uh, when they're trick-or-treating and E.T. sees a, a child dressed up as Yoda and he starts going, home 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 like that's just that's a funny joke like yoda's an alien and it's fun to think of a possibility that et and star wars maybe exist in the same universe yeah that was funny too it was a nice ironic thing right they did they did reference star wars i think twice right with that yoda thing and then the toys he talked about uh boba fett yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of Star Wars references, and it even cuts both ways, because if you, I mean, watch closely in Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, you can see little uh, E.T., uh, little E.T.'s in, the, in I think, one of the Senate hearings on Coruscant. <laughs> so Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are saying E.T. is from Star Wars. Yeah, and that's a, that's a fun headcanon to live in. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I like that. Well, it's, uh, okay. I'm down. I'm down. Uh, well, nobody really dies in this movie, obviously. Um, but did you have a yellow shirt? Um, so for yellow shirts, no, no, I didn't have a yellow shirt in this. Um, it was chill. It was all seemed to be chill for me in terms of like a lens flare. My only lens flare was, um, I think the scene where the kid got drunk, Elliot, and that like with the frogs, and then like he randomly kisses a student <laughs> and runs out. I mean, that was just so. It was just so that just kind of went off the wall bonkers. That scene where I was like, "Wait, what's happening?" Like it was more the utterly confusion where I wasn't sure if it was exactly necessary to tell the story. Um, but, you know, that just kind of confused me. And then maybe, like, some of, like, the con continuity issues of the movie. Like, where E.T., like, looks at the city and all of a sudden it's light out. And then it goes back to being dark. That was a little weird. But, no, I I, I really don't have too much, like, gripes or anything. Okay. I can, I can buy into that. Yeah, how about you? Any yellow shirts? 
Um, you know, we we talked about this character a little bit in breaking down the cast, but I if I had to pick a yellow shirt, I'd have to go with Michael. I mean, he initially starts off as Elliot's antagonistic older brother, but once he sees that E.T. is real, I mean, he, he defends him and sticks up for him and really plays a, an integral part in E.T.'s eventual rescue and return to his people. So, yeah, my, like it's the ideal older sibling, younger sibling relationship, I think, that you know, a lot of you know, sibling pairs kind of strive for at some point. I like that. I like that too. You know, because I think um, you hit it right on the head, man. It shows the growth. Growth. That's what we're about here. <laughs> uh, but not everybody was about growth in this movie. Sean, <laughs> do you want to hear? <laughs> do you want to hear the latest edition of this week in toxic fandom? Of course. What do we got? <laughs> okay. So. The movie is set in California, and there are several police cars when the government comes to the house and pursues the kids to catch E.T. The front of the police cars are missing a steady red light. Even during the time the movie was made in California, all police and emergency vehicles required at least one steady red light facing forward. I mean, every episode we find a new pedant that exists. And this one, it is police and emergency vehicle siren pedants. I can't believe that was the thing. Wow. I mean, thanks for the information. That was cool. I learned a little bit about life. But wow, that that was it. Not that the bag mag, you know, the bag valve mask that they used on E.T. wasn't like you know, they probably didn't get a good seal on his face. And it was blowing air into his eyes. Like, ah, that's hilarious. God, the internet never, um, God, it, it never, never surprises me. Never ceases to amaze me, Chris. I don't know, man. People pick weird hills to die on. And the internet is indicative of that every single day. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Jesus. Oh, my God. Well, thank you. Thank you for this week's Intoxic Fandom. Thank you for you uh, pet ants on the internet for for these lovely comments. But uh, now, now I guess we can get into the legacy of this movie. And I'll tell you what. This movie has uh, touched millions of lives. Millions. Yeah, I think to say that this movie was and continues to be a success is an understatement. It almost seems disrespectful to the legacy of this movie. I mean, it was made on a production budget of $10.5 million, and it wound up grossing $792.9 million, which actually became the highest grossing film of all time, which Spielberg held that record for 11 years until he supplanted it with his own movie, Jurassic Park. Oh, my God. So Spielberg was like, he was crushing those records like James Cameron before James Cameron. Well, and don't forget, too, he also made the highest grossing film of all time in Jaws, and he held that record for two years until Star Wars came out. So Spielberg has spent a lot of time at the top of Box Office Mountain. He has. And I mean, it makes sense to me. 
I I can't believe that though. The return on the investment for this movie is just insane. He made a lot of money from this. Well, it wasn't just the initial box office numbers. It was I mean, it's very impressive all on its own and it also spent 16 weeks in the number 1 position across 1982. But when it received a VHS release in 1988, the studio made an additional $75 million off the VHS release. Wow. And over time, it sold 15 million copies on VHS alone. I mean, even even my parents have a copy of this on VHS at their house. That is just wild. I mean, it it makes sense, though, right? Because I feel like this was such a good children's movie, especially in the 90s. You know, I, it's like a classic. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. That's awesome. Well-deserving. Well, well-deserving. Well, and if you want to be blown away even further, I mean, I couldn't find, like, current numbers as to, you know, what merchandise sales are now. But in 1998, it was estimated that E.T. merchandise made over a billion dollars in sales <laughs> alone. <laughs> That is just wild, man. One movie alone. Wow. I mean, that number is now probably close. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, that was 1998 that those numbers became available. So it's probably now closer to maybe a billion and a half um, dollars in merchandise sales. But either way, that's still a lot of money. Like, it's either, <laughs> I mean, what do, you're already at a billion dollars. What difference is a little more going to make? Well, yeah, and it's and it's. It's wild because, like, it's just a one movie, you know? Like, I'm sure, you know, Marvel and all that crap, it's, you know, they're up there as well. But that's because, like, they've had so much, like, the MCU to build upon, you know, to get to, the you know, the success to where they're at now. But this is one movie that touched so many people and, like, impacted the culture so much. It's just wild, man. So kudos to Spielberg. He just... He knocked it out of the park. And I and this movie's just it it's I think it's got like a ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's hailed. Yeah, and that's just like the modern reviews too. Like even critics at the time, they loved it. Like Roger Eber, who was probably the most impossible person in the world to please, like <laughs> gave it four stars. Wow. And Leonard Malton put it on his list of one hundred must see films of the twentieth century. So contemporary reviews were positive. Like you touched on, the modern reviews have been are obviously positive as well. And as far as I can tell, this is the first known film to have an A plus rating on Cinema Score. That is amazing. And didn't um didn't like the president Ronald Reagan back in the time and uh, Nancy Reagan, the first lady, they like were moved by it. I know Princess Diana was moved by it. Like a lot of people, it really touched a lot of people. Yeah, like even the United Nations was moved by it because they had a screening wow. for it and even gave Spielberg a peace medal for for this movie. <laughs> Culturally significant is what we call this. And I'm sure, right, this is absolutely, it was selected for National Film Registry for preservation. Oh, yeah, it was selected in 1994. So this is, this is going to be saved forever. Oh, yeah, it's forever. <laughs> We will it'll stand the test of time, and I'm sure it was nominated for a crap load of Oscars. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, 
Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing wound up winning for Best Original Score, deservedly so, for John Williams, in my opinion. Uh, A couple of Best Sound Awards and also Best Visual Effects. But it was funny because the Best Picture and Best Director winner of that year, Gandhi, uh, Richard Attenborough, the director of that movie, (laughs) said, like, E.T. was the much better film and deserved this award. (laughs) Wow. You know that your film knocked it out of the park when the dude that won, you know, for his movie, like, says, no, no, you picked the wrong guy. I mean, if, like, people actually voted correctly, Spielberg would have something like four or five movies win for Best Picture. Oh, I'm sure. It's like back in the day when uh, I think Ving Ramis or whatever his name, he won the Golden Globe and then he immediately surrendered it to Jack Lemmon. He was like, no, I don't deserve this. You deserve this, sir. Not me. I believe it. I mean, talent recognizes talent. And I mean, yeah, if I'm Richard Attenborough, I'm mailing my best director Oscar to Steven Spielberg and saying, like, I don't deserve this. God, that's incredible. Well, well, that's how you know. That is the highest praise, I feel like, in my opinion. And, you know, it's been around. It stood the test of time. They even made a video game of it back in 1983 on the Atari. Well, the game, <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the game because the game is actually doo-doo stew. So the the, <laughs> the idea behind it, because they wanted to, uh, Atari wanted to make a video game based on the movie, but they wanted to release it in time for the 1982 holiday season. Because they were going to package the game up with a new with a new Atari twenty six hundred. Oh boy! Um, and the developer, unfortunately, Howard Scott Warshaw, only had five weeks to make this game. Oh, and it turned out to be <laughs> one of the worst games ever made. Wow, isn't that wild? One of the most critically praised movies of all time poops out one of the worst games ever. <laughs> well, the it doesn't help that like all like the movie had come out everybody loved the movie so much and then it was only after the movie came out where they thought like oh we should make a video game too and capitalize on all of this oh there you go typical uh typical shysty businessmen trying to ah, let's 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 capitalize on this money you know it's it's like well if you would have just waited and put together a better game we would be hailing probably this you know, E.T. is one of the greatest games of all time. But instead, it uh, contributed to the crash of the video game. Oh, God. It's, it's, is it cited as a major factor to the video game industry crash of 83? Well, because the game was packaged up with the Atari 2600, it sold a lot of units at Christmas. But then when people realized how crappy the game was... They went and returned it back. It's like, I don't want to play this. And there was an urban legend that circulated for years that there were unsold cartridges of the game that were buried in a in a landfill in New Mexico. And this actually turned out to be true because I think it was like 2014. They found the pit where all of the, the unsold cartridges were buried in. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I got to look that up on YouTube. (laughs) <laughs> i gotta look it up see how that's it's crazy how that actually like um how that panned out that is just wild well it doesn't surprise me though you know what do we do with it let's just throw it in the ground <laughs> outstanding outstanding human race 
<laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to do some digging to see if there's like a, a like a cartridge on eBay I can buy just to like put in a display case and save. Right, that is something that you hold on to for a long time. One of the worst games ever. I'm gonna keep this forever. It did though. I so I know about this movie about uh, the ride at Universal Studios Florida because it did spawn off. You know, something good about it is that ride. Um, the E.T. Adventure, where you ride the little bikes and you, you know, you go around and it takes you a picture and you get to see E.T. and visit his home world or its home world and all that. And that's pretty that's a, another nostalgic trip for me. Yeah, it's one of the few rides that at least at the Universal Studios Florida that stuck around because that opened in uh 1990 and i remember going on that ride when i was like 13 <laughs> and it, it it warms my heart to see that universal has kept that around because there's been so many rides that they've taken down and like because i looked at their on their list today of like the attractions they have and i'm like none of these were up when i went mm-hmm. it's like what the hell you're taking out all the great <laughs> classic rides but i'm just i'm so happy to see the et adventure is still going strong at universal florida it has stood this the test of time probably because of the cash cow <laughs> they're like you know this ride actually looks really good it doesn't look like jaws which you know i loved that ride but it it did not look good no um <laughs> no i mean uh, uh thankfully this did not get a a sequel even though there were plans for one spielberg nixed that idea saying it uh it would rob the original of its virginity. So we didn't, we did not get a sequel to ET, but weirdly enough, there was a, there was a weird commercial that Comcast uh, did to kind of advertise their cable system. And it was ET showing up to an adult Elliot and his family. And this even featured Henry Thomas, the original actor from the movie and used the John Williams music and a practical puppet as E.T. interacts with Elliot's family and it ends the same way the movie did where E.T. returned to his ship and goes back to his planet. Oh, that is awesome. So you get a little teaser, right? A little... I mean, it was... A little peek into the future. But it's a commercial. <laughs> a little peek into the future, huh? If you want to buy some Xfinity products. It's a commercial. It just feels like the the bastardization of a beloved <laughs> a character in a beloved movie. It's just like, oh, you're just doing this to sell cable boxes and cable services. You don't actually <laughs> intend to give us an ET sequel. Like this is no. this is just yanking our chain here. Yanking our chain. Times have changed, Chris. It's almost four, it's forty years old. We gotta we gotta milk this thing for what it's worth. But I, I will say, all jokes aside, um, I am glad that they didn't make a sequel. Because I was actually, I was thinking about that when the movie ended. I was like, how could you, where could you even go with this? And I don't think you can. Um, or at least it wouldn't be a good cohesive story. So that's why I'm glad that we have things like the worst game ever made, the ride, these little commercials, some books, you know, as, as a way to like continue on the story, but without tainting the originality of the, uh, the first one. Yeah, I I agree. This is this is perfect as it exists. There's no need for a sequel. Absolutely. Well, too easy, my brother. Um, do you want to rate this awesome, awesome movie? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yes. 
So here on the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, we have a unique reading scale for our films that we watch of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. I'll kick this party started. Um, I think for me, I think E.T. is the epitome of science fiction and fantasy. Like I think there are a lot of children who dream of space travel or meeting someone or something from space. And I think this is Spielberg's crowning achievement. I think if you were going to make a Mount Rushmore uh, of his films, I think you w- it would be impossible to leave E.T. off of it. And I love how he drew from his own life to craft a story that's not only about family, but also about healing. And especially at the end when E.T., you know, leaves the Taylor family in a better place than he discovered them in. You know, they they discovered a sense of love and protection for one another that's hopefully would stand you know the rest of their lives. And and we touched on this earlier. I think the effect of E.T. as an animatronic puppet is still convincing and still offers that same buy-in after forty years. And it's a testament, I think, to the the timeless quality that exists in a lot of Spielberg films. I mean, Jaws, Jurassic Park, E.T. definitely are in that, you know, that vein of practical special effects. And I mean, we didn't even talk about the final 15 minutes of this movie where Michael and Elliot escape with E.T. in the van and they round up their friends to get on their bikes and go to the forest. And the, the John Williams music is you know, swelling and beautiful and matches the, the the action on screen perfectly. I think it's an absolute masterclass and probably some of the best 15 minutes in any film. And me at the end, me personally, I ugly cried like a little baby. And I think anybody who doesn't ugly cry at the end, they, they may be dead inside. I think there's an argument to be made there. Um, and I think this is a, this is a beautiful movie. Um, without question for me it is a would host a viewing party i'm invite i'm gonna invite people over to watch me cry at the end of this movie <laughs> i'll bring the kleenex box chris uh yeah please please bring one <laughs> uh, <laughs> no problem how about you sean what do you give to et uh you know i i don't think there's anything else that needs to be said um you know I'm I'm gonna agree with you. It's a would host a viewing party. Fantastic, all around, great cinematography. Reason why it gets all of the praise it does because it's not only a great story, it's very well made, and it's really hard to criticize things that are very well made and well written, well directed, well acted. So, high regards, and I'm gonna totally agree with you. The that ending, um, it's iconic. It's iconic. It's the reason why it's iconic. It just moves you, and ah, it's so wonderful. Just such a warm ending. Like I was just so happy seeing him hug E.T. And it's just like, yes, we need more hugs in life. We need more movies like this that end with just such a warm fuzzy, where you're just like, oh, I love people and I love life. There's there's hope for the world and uh, hope for humanity. So I would host a viewing party as well. Bust out your um your keys and bust out your spacesuits and your uh, weird Halloween costumes. Cause here we go. Well, 
We also have to big have a big bowl of Reese's pieces. So I think uh, <laughs> I think an ET viewing party is definitely in the works for us soon. Absolutely. Ah, always a pleasure, my good sir. What is next on the agenda? Well, we're going to continue on with Spielberg month, obviously. And uh, I had some difficulty in choosing the the next one. But I think, you know, we've watched two rather, you know, uplifting and happy Spielberg films. So I thought I'd go a little bit darker this time. I'm going to the year 2005. It's a movie starring Tom Cruise. And it is oddly enough a remake, a territory <laughs> Spielberg doesn't get into that often. But we're talking War of the Worlds next time on force fed sci-fi wow let's see tom cruise run away from aliens (laughs) not the first time we've seen tom cruise run away from aliens and it won't be the last gosh darn it every tom cruise film has him running we'll stay tuned folks (laughs) (laughs) what will tom cruise run away from this time i'm excited pumped to see this again it's been a while yeah for me too. I'm I'm excited to rewatch this. And Jean, regardless if these movies are good or bad, Spielberg directed or not, it is always a pleasure to talk about them with you. Absolutely, Chris. Always a pleasure. I appreciate you, my good sir. Thank you. And if you all enjoyed today's episode of the Force Fed Sci Fi Podcast, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForceFedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. And so for all of us at the Forest Fed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time.